as Mike, Pastor Michael mentioned, uh, if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Your Questions Answered. And this all came about because we wanted to hear from our young people the questions that they were asking. And so the questions that we're addressing in these series are questions that our, that our young people have submitted to us, and, and uh, so we're addressing them. And we believe that it's important here at the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church for uh, people of all ages to be asking questions, that we ask questions here about God, about the Bible, about life. We think it's important to do that, but I think that's especially true, especially important for our young people to be able to ask questions here in church. Because when students finish high school, you know, this is, there's this really telling statistic of young people that, grow, that go through church, uh, a part of youth group, go to Christian schools. Uh, the, the statistic is over half of them drift away from being connected to church after high school. And a lot of this happens because when students graduate from high school, they go off to college and, or, or different places, and they often face serious challenges to their faith. Maybe it's a challenge that just comes from the culture. Uh, maybe it's a challenge from their friends. Maybe it's a challenge to their faith that's, com- faith that's coming from uh, professors and things that they're reading. And we believe here at our church that no one should face these challenges alone. That's, that's our belief here. So in this series, young people, we want to address your questions, especially if you're between the ages of 18 and 29 years old. We want to hear from you. We want to address your, your questions. And that's, that's not because we think that the church has all the answers to everything. I think we have some good things to say. But we, I'm not saying that because we, we have all the answers. It's because we want to journey with you. We want to walk with you in this experience of faith and, 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 the, and the, the, spiritual, the spiritual journey. <clears throat> Although many young people may feel that church is not a safe place to ask questions, you know, questions that, that could potentially undermine faith. Some, some young people, actually many young people say, hey, I, I don't feel comfortable really honestly saying what I have questions about in church. Young people, your pastors and your elders, the leaders of, our, of this church would like for you to know that no honest question is off-limits here. And that's a big statement, but really, no honest question is taboo here in church. So if you have questions, we want to hear from you. Please text us. If, if there's a question that you're like, hey, I don't want for anyone to know that I am asking this question, and you don't want to say, well, a friend of mine is wondering— if you don't want to do that, just write it down in a connect card and drop it in the back bucket. You don't have to put your name on it. We, we will do our best to answer your question or to address those, those questions. And so far, we've gotten some great questions. Last week, Pastor Michael addressed a fundamental question I think that is, that is deep down in everyone's heart. Is that, that is, how can I know that I am saved? If you missed that presentation, you can go to our website and listen to it. Uh, Pastor Michael did a great job addressing that. Next week, we're going to address a very interesting question that was asked. The question is, how can we know that our religious services and culture are spirit-led, or are they just a preference of church leaders? How can we know that? So that's going to be really interesting. You won't want to miss that. Um, today, the, the question that we're going to address is, how do we know the Bible can be trusted? 
how do we know the Bible can be trusted? And I would like to to just uh, summon uh, the Spirit of God, not, not that I can, but to recognize that the Spirit of God is here, and um, just pause for prayer as we address this question. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you that you have answers to our questions. Thank you that you're able to speak to our hearts. Thank you that you're able to open our hearts to receive difficult answers that you might have for us. I pray, God, that we would be receptive. I pray that we would act upon the message that you are giving to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is the question. How do we know the Bible can be trusted? Really, there are two parts uh, that I see in answering this question. I'd like to just, uh, just kind of take it one at a time here. Um, the first part is how can we know that the Bible that we hold in our hands is accurate today? In other words, is this an accurate representation of what the Bible writers first put down? And, and this is an important question because the Bible that we hold in our hands is not translated from the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. Now, sometimes we'll say, oh, well, the original Greek or the original Hebrew. Actually, we, we do not have the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. Let, let me explain that a little bit. When Moses wrote down on whatever material that he wrote on the first five books of the Bible, we do not have that anymore. Paul's letters, the letters that Paul wrote, we don't have those in a museum somewhere. Those, those were read and reread, and over time, they began to fall apart. And so, out of necessity, copies were made of these letters. Now, that, that was an important thing. I'm really glad that they made copies of these writings of Scripture. Otherwise, we wouldn't have what we have today in the Bible. Um, but the problem with that is that these copies were done by hand. And so, with that, there is always the, the possibility of human error, copyists, um, making a mistake when, they, when they're reading the, the, the original text, and okay, and they're, they're making a copy of that. They're, they could have made a mistake. They could have also come across something and said, that's a little unclear. Maybe if I write it this way, it will be a little bit more clear. So there's the possibility that alterations could have been made to the original message. And so over time, after copies and more copies and copies of those copies were made, one might wonder if the text that we hold in our hand, the translation into English, if that is an accurate representation of what the Bible writer originally wrote. So it's a, an honest question. And, and if you've ever played the telephone game where you stand around in a circle and somebody says a story and it whispers a story into the ear of, of the person next to them, and then when they hear that, then they take that story and then they, they whisper that same story into the ear of the next person. It goes all around the circle until the last person says what they heard. Many times that can be completely different from the original story that was told. And so some might wonder, is that what hap has happened to our Bible? That even though Moses may, may have been inspired by God when, when he wrote all this down, after copy, copies after copies were made, perhaps the story was altered. Perhaps the, the, the message was lost over time. Well, fortunately, there are a lot of solid reasons solid evidence to trust that our Bibles are still accurate. Perhaps one of the most, perhaps the most significant uh, 
source of evidence or piece of evidence to, to be able to say that our biblical text is accurate was a discovery that was made in 1947. It actually happened by accident. A Bedouin shepherd uh, was looking for a lost goat and came across a series of limestone caves in just northwest of the Dead Sea. And inside these caves, this Bedouin shepherd discovered clay jars that were filled with hundreds of scrolls. These scrolls contain portions of every book in the Old Testament, with the exception of Esther. Okay, but every other book in the Old Testament was represented, some in large part, but there was a representation of, of, of these Old Testament books in these scrolls. And one of the reasons that the Dead Sea Scrolls, as they are called today, are so significant is that these scrolls date back to as early as 200 B.C., and definitely no later than 70 A.D., but most scholars place them between 200 and 100 B.C., somewhere in there. In other words, these scrolls, the writings here of, of the Old Testament scriptures, give us a picture of the Bible that Jesus would have known and used. That's pretty significant. And as Hebrew language experts took, have taken these, these writings that were found in the Dead Sea and have compared them to our modern versions of the Bible, they have made an incredible discovery that the message of the Old Testament has not been lost that it is accurately represented in our Bibles today, even though this is a couple thousand years later. It's incredible evidence that what we hold in our hands, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, is accurate. Now, similarly, the, we have solid textual evidence for the accuracy of the New Testament. There are complete copies of the New Testament dating back to the 4th and 5th century A.D., and partial texts, like this one here, this is the, the, one of the Chester Beatty papyri, if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, this is from uh, the, the book of Ephesians, right there. Um, first chapter in Ephesians. And it dates back to as early as 200, 250 A.D. Some of these fragments, there's a fragment of the, the Gospel of John, and it's, it's very small, but it's very significant, but it, that is dated back to 125 A.D. So this is back to the time where people who knew the apostles or people who knew those who knew the apostles were living. And they could verify if this is something that they really taught or if this was just hearsay. So this is really impressive. But not only that, we have over 5,000 texts, 5,000 uh, e either fragments, portions of the Bible, or, or complete um, portions of the Bible in, in, in Greek, of the New Testament. We have over 5,000 of these, of these texts that give biblical scholars and, and uh, textual critics a good idea, really, really accurate idea of what the message was that Jesus proclaimed and, and what were the, the disciples really saying. So we have good evidence, good evidence, substantial evidence that, that our Bibles are accurate today, that this is a, an accurate representation of what Paul wrote, an accurate representation of what Moses and, and the other Bible writers wrote. But just because we can say that this book, that the Bible is accurate, just because we can say that it is accurate, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible can be trusted. It might be accurate, but, but, but can we really trust it? 
Because even if the Bible is accurate, the question, the next question that we need to address is, why should I trust it? And I would push it even a little further. Why should I trust anything for that matter? Well, to help us answer this question, I'd like to share an experience that addresses a key issue when it comes to trust. Okay, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. In college, I served as a student missionary in the country of Ecuador, South America. I was there teaching at a school, and I served there for about a year. And after being there for a couple of weeks, um, something really unfortunate happened. I drank some unpurified water accidentally. I didn't know, and, and I, you know, I drank it. I think they mixed a drink with it. Uh, they got it from a well. Or something. They didn't tell me, it, and so I drank it. And as a result, I had some serious stomach issues. If you've ever drank, an un, drank unpurified water, and y- you know what I'm talking about. It, it's just awful. But since I was in, uh, in a country that didn't have the same standard of medical care that I was used to here in the United States, I decided that I would try to, to deal with it on my own. Um, I would try to just, you know, be able to figure it out without having to go to see a doctor. And so I got rest. I tried to stay as hydrated as possible. You know that that's important. Um, and I ate as healthy as possible. But after about a month, my stomach issues had not gone away. It was miserable. It was a miserable time. It, so I would, I would, it was all that I could do to get out of bed and go teach the class that I was supposed to teach. And then I would just go back to bed. And, and I was just miserable. And it was not getting any better. Well, when the director of the school, um, who, I, who I knew and I trusted and re- really appreciated him, when the director of the school found out that I was not getting any better, he was he was actually pretty upset. He, he, he was like, hey, I wish I would have known about this sooner. He insisted that I go see a doctor. A doctor. And because, because I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired, I said, okay. I agreed to go. But when I got to the doctor's office, I had some real concerns. During the consultation, the doctor was smoking. And, and, okay, so they do things differently in other countries, right? So I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I feel super comfortable about that. But then he tells me to go and sit, lay down on the, the consultation table. And, uh, you know, you might, you might think of your experiences with that here. And, and, and I certainly did. Like, I was expecting to have a nice table that was covered with that nice paper, you know? There was no paper. And the table had been used so much that you could see the indentation in the table where, where the people, you know, so many people from, for generations perhaps had, had used that table. And so I'm like, oh. but I felt so bad. I was so sick. I was just like, I, all right, I'll lay down. He went to take my temperature. And to take my temperature, he had a jar with blue liquid in it. I'm not sure what that blue liquid was. But in this blue liquid, there were glass thermometers, old school glass thermometers. It was an open jar. There were multiple glass thermometers in there. He pulled one out, shook it off, and (laughs) put it in my mouth, and and took my temperature. And then after making the diagnosis and after making the assessment, he he prescribed an injection of antibiotics in my arm. He said, okay, this is what you need to do. Go down and—this is how you do it. You go down to the pharmacy, and you actually buy the stuff um, yourself, and then you bring it back, and then they inject it. Um, So— all right, so needless to say, there were several red flags in this whole situation um, about whether I was going to trust this guy or not. But the situation was, I trusted the director of the school. 
So I knew that the director of the school wanted me to get, to the, get the best care possible. He cared for me. He's a Christian man. He's a good guy. I was a good friend of his, of his son. And, and so he wanted the best for me. He was sending me to the best doctor that, that he could, and that this doctor was a specialist. I knew that this doctor was seeing people with stomach issues like I had every day, and this guy had a track record of helping people feel better. So there was, there was some good evidence to base my trust in, in this doctor. But even though, even though, so as much as I did not want to trust this doctor, and, and even though I had some evidence to trust him, the real reason why I trusted him is because I just flat out needed help. If I, knew, if I had him by thinking, well, wait, 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 let me try some other natural remedy. Let me, there's something else going on. I had tried everything. I had done everything, and I just needed help. I needed help that I could not provide myself. And so I was willing to take the injection, which was awful. But a day or two later, I was 100% again. I felt great. I didn't have any problems after that. It was, it was strong medicine, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, but here's the point. Trusting requires risk. And risk is uncomfortable. So unless we really accept that we need help from somebody else, we're not going to trust, chances are. At least we're not going to trust our life. Because trusting requires risk. I never would have trusted this doctor if I wasn't convinced I needed his help. There was, there was a risk that I was willing to take because I was desperate. Now, spiritually speaking, okay, here's the parallel. We are all desperately sick, right? And if you have any questions about that, try and go follow your values, Try to do that in your own strength. Like, we cannot live up to our values, whether it's honesty or being kind or being unselfish. We might pretend on our own that we can do these things, but in our hearts, we, we've got real issues, and that comes out. And as a result, this, these character defects that are in our lives make us miserable. If you're like me, no matter how hard I've tried to get rid of these character defects that, that make my life miserable, I have not been successful. I'm not getting any better on all my own resources. So why trust the Bible? Here's why. Because the Bible offers a long-term solution to our problems. That's why. Let's take a look at that. You may be familiar with this verse, John 3, 16. It says, whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is a long-term solution to our problem. We all die, so what do we do about it? There's nothing we can do about it, but God gives us a long-term solution of eternal life. And... According to this text, the Bible is saying that we really have no other options because if we trust anyone or anything other than Jesus, the Bible says that we will perish. Now, this is not just talking about missing out on eternal life. This is talking about missing out on life now. If you look really closely at the text, it says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have, actually, I inserted the word will, but they have today, present tense, eternal life life. So by trusting in Jesus, you begin to experience a life that you could not experience on your own. 
That is the claim of the Bible. Now we're going to talk about whether that claim is true or not or how we can trust it, but that is the claim of the Bible, that the Bible claims to have a long-term solution to our problems, and there is only one option according to the Bible, and that is Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus, he will give us the abundant life that our hearts desire. He will save us from the, the habits and the stuff that, that we do that makes us miserable. It's present tense, but it's also eternal life in the future. So how does the Bible tell us to trust in God? How do we have this experience of eternal life beginning today, the abundant life now? Freedom from misery, from the, from the things that make our lives miserable. Sin is what the Bible would call those things. How do we have that? Uh, please turn with me uh, to 2 Timothy. And, and these page numbers, by the way, are, are, are page to the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to use that. Page 1199, uh, 2 Timothy here, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 16 and 17. All right, so um, here the Bible tells us how to trust God. And, and you have to look at it closely, and I'll, I'll do some explaining to hopefully make that clear. But before the Bible tells us how to trust God, it makes an incredible claim about itself. The Bible makes this claim about itself. It's an incredible claim. It's an amazing claim. And if this claim is true, we cannot safely distrust the Bible. It is not safe for us. If this claim is true, our only safe course of action is to fully trust what the Bible says, if it's true. All right, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this about itself. Uh, The Bible says this about itself. All Scripture is God breathed. This is the NIV. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. According to the Bible, God created everything, right? You read Genesis, and it talks about God speaking in it, and, and you kind of have this, this connection that happens when it says all Scripture is God-breathed, and, and we go back to the, the story of creation where God is breathing, so to speak. He's, he's speaking, and things are happening. There's stars that are appearing. There's plants and animals. All kinds of things are happening because God is speaking. He's speaking the world into existence. God creates life. He is the source of life. So when when we read the Bible according to this, if if the Bible is God-breathed, then the commands of God, the teaching of God that we find in the Bible, these are not suggestions. These are not saying, well, if you you would like to to maybe try, it's, it's not a suggestion. It is a command. It is authoritative. Why? Because the one who is giving it to us is not just a human, it's not a human being. It is God-breathed. That's the claim of Scripture. So the one who created everything is the one who is speaking to us here. I mean, we can't just disregard what this, what this book is saying to us because it's coming from the one who made us and the one who knows what is best for us. When 2 Timothy was written, the, the, the idea of Scripture, like what was he talking about when he said all Scripture there in verse 16? When, when he was writing this, their Scripture was the Old Testament, right? The Yeah, the the 39 books of the Old Testament. However, because the New Testament writers recorded the work and message of Jesus, they viewed the, the books that we call the New Testament today, they viewed those as equal in authority to the Old Testament scriptures. So when the Bible says here, all scripture, it's talking about the the 66 books of the Bible, the biblical canon as it is technically referred to, or the canon would be not not the 
it's, it's not, amu- it's, it's not the, the, the military weapon, that's not the cannon it's talking about. It's a cannon is another word for cannon, or another description of cannon is a measuring stick. That's why, that's why it's called the biblical cannon. This is the measuring stick for truth, so to speak. So when, the, when, it, when 2 Timothy, here Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, it's saying that this book that we hold in our hands, that's the claim, is that this book is inspired by God. So it is dangerous for us to disregard the author of our life, what, what he has to say to us. Um, Jesus makes this really clear in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 26 and 27. Uh, this, is, this is what Jesus says. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, the Bible describes Jesus as God, um, everyone who hears the words of mine, Jesus is speaking, speaking of God, does not put, and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man, he's comparing this, listen to the comparison, who built his house on sand, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Reading the Bible and not trusting it, Jesus is saying, is like building a house on the beach while a hurricane is coming. It's going to crash. That's what's going to happen. The the result in your life of not trusting the Bible, this is the biblical claim, the result in your life, my life, of not trusting the Bible is catastrophic. It's really serious. It's not just, oh, this is probably a nice thing to do if you have time. No, it's life or death. That's the biblical claim. That's what Jesus claims. The Bible claims to have the only remedy for our soul sickness. But it doesn't just make claims. It gives evidence for the divine authorship of these claims. And one of the outstanding reasons for us to trust, one of the outstanding sources of evidence to trust that the Bible is divinely inspired, that it is, it is in fact, God-breathed, and Paul wasn't just making stuff up and writing things out. It is, in fact, God-breathed. One of the, one of the incredible evidences is prophecy. Um, there are many examples of prophecy. I just want to give you a couple of them, uh, just to... Just to help you have it clear in, in your thinking as, we, as we're considering this question. How do we know we can trust the Bible? So um, Daniel, the book of Daniel offers some famous examples of God revealing the future, things that would happen, events that would happen hundreds of years in the future, and he reveals it with 100% accuracy. You, you might be f- familiar with Daniel 2 and, and the dream that he received. Um, God this is going to be Daniel 8 here, this, this picture here. Um, God showed Daniel that Babylon, even though Babylon seemed like it was just invincible, this incredible city with thick walls, and they had all kinds of provisions. I mean, who could overthrow Babylon? Just this powerful, powerful nation. But God showed, ba- God showed Daniel that Babylon would not last, but he didn't just stop there. Not only did he say that Babylon would not last, and looking back on things, we could say, well, duh, we know it wouldn't last, but from the appearances, they seem to be around for a really long time. But God says, hey, it's it's not only not going to last, in Daniel chapter 8, he actually names the nations that would overthrow, the kings that would overthrow Babylon, and, and the successive nation as well. All right, so using the symbolism of a ram and a goat, this is what Daniel, is a depiction of what Daniel saw. And, and here in the book of Daniel, these a- animals would represent different nations, much like today we have animals that represent different nations. Um, 
But here, using the symbolism of a ram and a goat, God tells the, the story of which kings would dominate. Okay, so let me give it to you here. Daniel 8, 21 and 22, it says, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Names the, names the nation right there. This is who is going to succeed Babylon. Who's going to do it? Nobody? God knows. Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. So some people might say, well, how do we know that Daniel was actually writing this before these things took place? I mean, some, some uh, critics will, will look at this and say, we think that, that this was actually another writer that came in and was looking back on what took place and, and was just recording that historically. But there's a couple of reasons why I would really challenge that. The, the first one is all throughout the book of Daniel, he is giving historical markers as to when he lived. In fact, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, he says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So he was writing this before Medo-Persia had come and taken over. And it was during a time when it seemed like Babylon would last for a really long time. People weren't expecting Babylon to be overthrown. That's when he wrote this. The second reason that I would say that it's not someone else that came in later and, and put that is because that would be intentionally deceptive. The, the impression that we get as we just read it for, for what it's worth is that Daniel, the author of this book, wants people to think that it was written before Media and Persia and, and Greece came along. But here, the prophet Daniel sees with 100% accuracy things that would, that would not happen for hundreds of years. Who would take over Babylon? And who would take over Persia? It's going to be Greece. History tells us that he was 100% accurate. It's incredible. Another example of divine revelation in the Bible is Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 28. Okay, so it is well documented that the prophet Isaiah lived and prophesied at the end of the 8th century and the beginning of the, of the 7th century, rather, B.C. So it goes down from the 8th century to the 7th century B.C. This was about 100 years, a little bit more than 100 years before Babylon was conquered, or sorry, before Babylon conquered Jerusalem. Sorry, I'm mixing things up here. About a, a little over 100 years before Jerusalem fell to, to the nation of Babylon. So they're not even in exile at this point. And yet here Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 44, he speaks of a time where they will be returning from exile. He speaks of a Persian king who hadn't even been born yet, and he prophesies that this Persian king is going to do something that was completely unexpected. Okay, so notice what it says. Isaiah 44, 28, who says, this is God speaking, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, the typical, the typical procedure of a conquering king was to demand worship of his subjects. But here the prophecy of Cyrus the Great is that he would encourage, and he would also fund, he would, he would make a decree, and he would give royal funds to carry that decree out for Jews to return to their homeland and worship another god that would likely lead them from trusting in, in, in honoring and honoring and following the, the decrees of Cyrus. Who does that? Like, no one would expect that. 
that he would decree that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Doesn't make any sense, but in 538 BC, that is exactly what happened. Cyrus the Great comes along and makes this decree. Almost 200 years before Persia even overthrew Babylon, before, as I mentioned, before Jerusalem even went into cap, before the Jews even went into captivity into Babylon, Isaiah tells us by name who it would be that would make a decree that no one expected. It's going to be Cyrus the Great. He's going to say, go rebuild the temple. Sends them off. Although these, although these examples here, and, there, and of course there are many more that we could talk about if we had the time, al- although these, these examples give reasonable evidence to trust that the Bible is inspired by God, they do not prove that the Bible is trustworthy. They don't prove it. Like, in other words, there are people that are still out there that, that are making arguments not to trust the Bible. And the reality is, is that we cannot know that the Bible is truly trustworthy, that I can truly trust the Bible. I cannot really know that until I am willing to take the risk and actually trust it. I cannot know for myself. So imagine for a moment, I'll finish with this. Imagine for a moment, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but if you could go with me, I think it'll be productive. Imagine that you have never sat in a chair before in your life. Okay, just imagine that for a moment, right? Perhaps you've seen pictures, maybe you've heard of people sitting in chairs and and finding rest in chairs, and, and, and you know that it's been a good experience, but maybe you've also heard about chairs crumbling under people, you know, falling, breaking underneath them. Maybe you've heard of people pulling chairs out from underneath others as they went to sit down. And so there's some doubts that are, that are in your mind, and, and you've, you've never sat in a chair, but one day after being on your feet all day long, you come across a chair. There it is, right? And the question is, my feet are tired. Can I trust that I can sit in this chair and find rest? Be able to get, get some rest from my tired feet. Now, chances are, if you've never sat in a chair before, you're going to maybe do some research, right? You're going to look at it, walk around. You're going you're to assess whether it seems like it is structurally sound and can hold you. Maybe you'll, you maybe you'll touch it a little bit and, and, and look at that. That's good, right? But no amount of research, here's the point, don't miss this. No amount of research and studies that you might do on the materials used and, and the, the, the angles, and like, you can do all kinds of research on, on it, right? No amount of research will rest your feet. No amount of research will give you the experience of rest. You do not know that you can really trust this and what that experience is like for you. Now, other people might be able to sit in it and experience but you don't know for yourself until you sit down. That's good. Right? I can, I can be theoretical, and I can do all kinds of research, but I don't know the experience for myself that this chair can be, chair can be trusted until I choose to take a risk and do something that I've never done before and sit down and experience the benefit of it. I can see myself doing this again. So... You know, the same is, is true with the Bible. Can the Bible be trusted? Yes, yes. There, there is evidence to say that the Bible can be trusted. 
but I don't know that I can trust the Bible until I take a risk and say, I am going to follow the teachings of the Bible. It is profitable for teaching. So in order to, to receive this, this instruction in the Bible, what must I do? I must be willing to be taught, right? I must say, I have something that I need to learn. It's profitable for correction, in other words, I must be willing to, to know what is truth. It's profitable for rebuking. I must be willing to hear where I am wrong. It is profitable for training in righteousness. I must be willing to be disciplined, to follow spiritual disciplines outlined in the Bible, prayer, Bible study, service, these kinds of things. I must be willing to do those things. That is how I trust the Bible. And until I do that, I'm not going to know for myself that the Bible can be trusted. And that's really the question, right? I mean, if, if, if the pastor trusts the Bible, or your parents trust the Bible, or if your friends trust the Bible, okay, great. But can you trust the Bible? You cannot answer that question until you take a risk and say, I will submit to what it says and see. For me, this, this risk is perso personally, I've struggled with taking this risk. I've, I've, I've struggled with trusting the Bible. I'll tell you why. Because the Bible tells me to do things that I don't like. It tells me to submit, and I don't want to submit. Frankly, I don't. I should, and, and there's good reasons for me too, but, but the natural response to this stuff is I do not want to submit to the teachings of the Bible. The Bible tells us to love an enemy. Who's lining up for that? The Bible tells me to forgive and to not stop forgiving. It gives good reason to do that. But the Bible tells me to do that. Even if I have a good reason to hold on to resentment, the Bible tells me to, to love and to serve other people, to forgive them. And although I am uncomfortable with the idea of trusting my life to someone else, the, the idea of trusting the Bible, of submitting to it, I'm uncomfortable with that. The reality is, is that I've had to accept that on my own, I'm not getting any better. And I need help outside of myself. And when I've chosen to trust the teachings of the Bible, to love an enemy, to pray, to serve when I feel entitled, to forgive even though I think they don't deserve it, when I've done these things, I've experienced a joy and a peace that I could never find on my own. I know it can be trusted because I've taken the risk. So today, if you are sick and tired of the character defects in your life that are making you sick and tired, I want to invite you to take a risk and trust the Bible. Yes, consider the evidence. Make a, make a, make a good decision. See for yourself if if the prophecies are true. See for yourself if the evidence that I've presented here is, is in fact true. Look into the Dead Sea Scroll discovery and all the other things that are there uh, to point to the accuracy and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Yeah, do, do your research. Do all that. But you'll never know what this experience is like to trust in God, the life-giving power that frees us from the miserable things that we do. You'll never know that for yourself until you open the word of God yourself and say, I choose to submit to this. I choose to take a risk. And when you do, you will see for yourself that the Bible can be trusted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for how you bear long with our doubting hearts. 
how you bear along with us, our willfulness, even though you give us no reason not to trust you. You are patient with us. I want to pray for each of us, myself, each of my friends here, my church family. I pray, God, for the courage to take the risk to trust in you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray.